0: Welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast, your destination for nourishing and flourishing in the medical speech and language pathology field. Today's episode features Hannah Grassi of the Parkinson's Report, an online resource for SLPs and persons with Parkinson's. Hannah joins me on this episode to discuss evaluation and treatment considerations for working with patients with Parkinson's. I'm so pleased to share the audio from the two-hour live ASHA CEU with SpeechTherapyPD.com. If you missed the live event, you can access the video recording plus slideshow with your SpeechTherapyPD.com basic or premium membership. In part one, with part two airing next week, Hannah covers treatment and evaluation considerations for hypophonia, cognition, motor speech, and dysphagia. I love the organization and comprehensiveness of these topics that Hannah covers in part one. Plus, the resources she provides are so helpful. They're applicable, accessible, and above all, useful. So be sure to check out the show notes on speechuncensored.com. My name is Leanne Porter, I'm your host, and this is the Speech Uncensored podcast. Now, let's meet Hannah. To get started, I thought I'd just share your bio real quick, if that's all right. Sure. All right. So, Hannah is a clinician um, in the Virginia region. Well, I guess we'll know that's a state. So, let's go with that and has practiced in various settings, including special education in schools, skilled nursing facilities, continuing care communities, home healthcare, and outpatient therapy since 2010. And her primary clinical interest is Parkinson's disease. Um, and she serves as a patient advocate through volunteer work in her community through local and national organizations. Hannah's the founder and blog author of the Parkinson's report, an online resource and blog for the Parkinson's disease community to gain easily navigable resources on relevant topics to their care. All right. So, um, I'm Leanne, as I mentioned, I host the speech uncensored podcast, and that's where I got to kind of begin unpacking Hannah's knowledge on Parkinson's and how we can use that in our practice. Um, Okay so Hannah was there anything that you wanted to add to your bio or a little bit more about you and what you're engaged in right now?
1: Sure yeah I'll add just a bit. Um, I recently moved from Washington DC to a slightly more rural area of Virginia and most recently have been working in an assisted living and independent living setting so kind of back to some of the roots that I've uh, where I started and, um, I'm getting to actually start their speech program. They've never had a speech therapist on staff. Um, so it's an interesting time to go back to work, but it has, um, that's, that's what I'm currently doing and um, hoping to yeah, make a difference in that community.
0: That's awesome. Wonderful. I feel like it's uh, an incredible opportunity and yet a ton of like stress and pressure to initiate a speech program for a location.
1: Yes, I think so. Um, I like the autonomy that I've been given. (laughs) It allows me to pick and choose a few things, um, you know, which assessments we get and things like that. Um, But you're right. There's a lot of pressure. Anyone that comes after me, you know, may really love what I've done or may think, gosh, why didn't she do X, Y, or Z? So we'll see how it all turns out. All right. Awesome.
0: Okay. Well, our topic for this evening is equipping your therapy sessions, Parkinson's and what you need to know. And I think what one of the many things that I'm super excited about in this talk is that you're not focusing on any one area that we might be working with, with the patient with Parkinson's, but we're looking at voice, motor speech, cognition, and dysphagia. So I think that's really awesome.
1: So I wanted to make sure we are all um just you know, on the same page about our role. It is an incredibly diverse role when it comes to Parkinson's care. Um, as Leanne mentioned, there's hypophonia for voice, dysarthria with motor speech, uh, cognition, dysphagia, and then also the patient counseling, family education and collaboration. Um, we're gonna take a deeper dive into all of those uh, top four deficits and you'll hear me reference um, a little bit more about the patient counseling and family education and collaboration one thing that i feel that i've learned over time in various in the various settings i've worked in is that sometimes the the speech language pathologist gets the most one-on-one like talking time with uh the patients and you know somehow things come out during that time and we we get to um, sometimes see a side of the patient or get information from the patient um that leads to a them needing some some counsel on on how to move forward, or um, gives us an opportunity to talk to their family. Um, and I think that that's very unique to our discipline. Um, and so I wanted to just put that out there, remembering that that patient counseling is really important um, because we have access to them when sometimes other disciplines don't. Mm-hmm. So again, we'll touch more on these things as we go along. Okay, so this tonight this conversation is primarily about idiopathic parkinson's disease but i think it's important for us to know what we're dealing with and part of that is having at least an idea in the back of our minds what some of the parkinson plus syndromes are so i wanted to just give a quick shout out to some of the common ones um and i'd be very interested if you want to write in the chat if you have um, currently treat or have treated people with any of these parkinson plus syndromes and your experience or how it was different from Parkinson's for you. Um, I pulled some of this this information from the health library at the University of Michigan, Michigan Medicine. Um, And instead of giving you the descriptions that they provided, I decided to pull out from their descriptions, what makes it different from Parkinson's. So progressive supranuclear palsy is a Parkinson plus syndrome. It often looks like Parkinson's, but it's unique um, because they often have difficulty with eye movement um some more stiffness in the spine and neck area their speech and swallowing deficits tend to be a little bit more severe and be a lot more prevalent and it overall progresses more quickly um then we have multiple systems atrophy msa the the msa coalition their website actually discusses um how difficult it is to diagnose um msa versus Parkinsons that they they look so much alike sometimes that it's very difficult for um, neurologists to actually do differential diagnosis but a few things that make MSA different is that it does progress more quickly than Parkinsons typically and the traditional carbidopa levodopa treatment that that's provided to our patients with Parkinsons will work at first but then begin to no longer be effective. Um, They also tend to have falls at the beginning of the disease rather than in the later stages like you usually see with idiopathic Parkinson's. Um, So uh, this is a mouthful, cortical basal ganglionic degeneration. this is I've never treated anyone with CBGD, so I'd be particularly interested if you have to um, let us know a little bit about it. Um, but they talked a little bit about there being some additional language issues that they begin to lose the ability to understand spoken and written language. Um, also, the alien limb phenomenon um, kind of sounded like a dyskinesia, but of one particular limb sort of loss of motor control of one particular limb. Um and then okay. the dementia with Louie bodies, we're gonna get to you a little bit later. Yes, Leanne.
0: All right, so when someone is describing this alien limb, that's, that's just erratic movements of one limb. So that could be an arm, it could be a leg. Yes. And it's just moving involuntarily. So that's like how different? Because I'm wondering how they differentiate that from like tremor or some yeah. other kind of motor movement issue.
1: Yeah, no, that that's a a good question Um, based off of the description that the Michigan um, University of Michigan stated it sounded a little bit closer to dyskinesia versus tremor Um, so kind of that like swaying movement um, that they're it's more like um, dancing than it is tremoring Um, and you know, I don't know the the details of that particular phenomenon outside of what they described there. again i've I've never met anyone with CBGD, but um they said that that really that these are the four more common Parkinson plus syndromes, and then I thought, okay, why, well, I know I've heard of it. Um, and I thought it was worth including here. Mm-hmm. You know, as I mentioned earlier, um we are often spending a lot of time with the patients, and we're sometimes the front line for referral. And so right? we get people that come in and we think, well, this looks like Parkinson's, but there's something kind of off here. Um, And that can be a great time to collaborate and say, does anyone else see these things? You know, maybe we're missing something here. Mm -hmm. Um, Hannah, I have one more question. Yes. (laughs)
0: Um, Back when you were talking about multiple systems atrophy and you mentioned that they have an increased frequency of falls at the beginning of the disease, but they don't see it as much as it progresses. Does that mean like they're falling less
1: as time Um, goes? No, good question. Um, I may have um, said that in a strange way. So, in comparison to Parkinson's, so if they someone has MSA, they will begin having falls much earlier in their disease. But if they have Parkinson's, they most likely won't begin to have frequent falls until later stages in the disease. So that makes them different. Yeah. Okay. So if you have MSA, no, you don't improve. And this is. I was like. No good okay. question. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, um, I will say one other quick shout out to an, another Parkinson plus syndrome, or at least one that is related to, which is young onset Parkinson's. Um, and I didn't put that in, in here, but that is a, another, um, a branch, right? So if you're diagnosed before the age of 50, it's considered young onset Parkinson's disease. And, um, I'm still learning a little bit about the way that that progresses, but there are quite a few differences too in young onset and idiopathic Parkinson's and the way that it progresses. So we've got to keep our eyes out, make sure we're advocating for our patients. But moving forward, we're going to mostly focus on idiopathic Parkinson's. So diagnosed 50 or after, and as traditional as you can progress, um, that's what it will be if you have idiopathic Parkinson's. All right, so I want to, to focus on some considerations and questions of an assessment um, I I tend to say okay well best case scenario what kind of information could I get and this that's what this is going to reflect um, in the real world sometimes we can't get all this information but prior to your assessment of someone with Parkinson's if it's possible to talk to them and say um, call ahead if you're an outpatient or stop by their room if you're in long-term care and just say, Hey, I'm Hannah. I'm your speech language pathologist. I'm going to be coming by to assess you. What are your primary concerns um, I find that this can help uh, Help you focus your assessment, um, especially because in a lot of settings. We don't have over an hour. And if someone says um, You know, really uh, voice is my main concern. I'm just not being able to be heard. That will save you time um, and it will also when you get there, you can really um, go through and say okay our our main objectives are going to be looking at voice, but we can you know I can follow up with some screens in the other areas um, and help again just make your time a little bit more efficient because there are so many areas of concern in parkinson's um, Then also, if the person comes in for multidisciplinary evaluations asking to schedule yours first um, and that's not selfish of us we actually expend the, the usually the least amount of physical energy in our assessments and um dopamine um, begins to disappear um, when people are stressed and when they are physically exerting themselves with parkinson's and so um when they have a PT and, and or OT exam, uh, assessment prior to you, they're going to come to you completely depleted. And that can be really difficult when you're trying to assess them. So if at all possible, ask to, to be first in the lineup.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good tip that I wouldn't have thought of to put out there and and kind of make it known that for the patient's best outcomes for us to get, like, let's, work our best to meet this kind of scheduling idea.
1: Like that's a really good, <laughs> yeah. glad to get that on there. Yeah. Um, then asking for the primary care partner, if they're actively involved at this time in, in the disease process, asking them to attend the assessment if at all possible. Um, I think I mentioned this a little bit later um, in the in the presentation, but one of the things that we know is that people with Parkinson's tend to have a slightly skewed um, perspective of their clinical symptoms, feeling like maybe they aren't happening to the degree that they are happening. So when you have a primary care partner, you have a second opinion, Um, you have someone who lives life with them usually and can give additional input and that can be really helpful at assessment. So you're not three or four sessions in and then the family calls and says, well, why aren't you working on cognition? He can't remember a thing. (laughs) Um, So that can be really helpful. Um, I'm gonna get on a tiny little soapbox on this next one. So asking about the referring physician who referred you, certainly if you're an outpatient, you probably should have the information when they arrive, but asking about a movement disorder specialist. Okay, so if you have patients with Parkinson's and they are not seeing a movement disorder specialist, please, please um, educate them that this is a specialist who is specifically Uh, designed to treat them, to treat them because they have Parkinson's disease. And this is a neurologist who has had additional training um, specifically for movement disorders like Parkinson's. Um, You know, I often, you know, think of metaphors like, okay, if, if I was, you know, God forbid, if I was diagnosed with something like stomach cancer, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to a family practitioner for that treatment. And I I wouldn't even go to a general gastroenterologist. I'd want someone in the oncology department. And so you're going to look for someone who is the highest level of ability and knowledge in your area. So asking about the referring position, finding out if they have an MDS, a movement disorder specialist. um, And if not, later on a slide that's called um, Tools for Patients, um, there is a movement disorders specialist finder. And you can just send them to that link and they can find who's close in their area. Um, easier said than done in some regions. I know that in more rural areas that could be difficult to find, but um, it's really important that they're seeing an MDS. Um, and then, go Hannah, ahead.
0: Um, in your experience, have some of these MDS clinics also been associated with like universities or with like research labs? and they have the opportunity if they're interested in participating in um a study or a trial and absolutely. they might find that really beneficial too
1: absolutely that's a great point um on the on uh one of the slides later too i will list a couple of pla- other places too they can participate in research if they're interested and that's exactly the case, especially in Washington, DC. There's a variety of movement disorder specialists who are on big research teams who are constantly trying to pump out new articles and journals, uh, uh, journal articles that are about the the best new treatment and the medications that are coming out. Um, And finally, a consideration is um, if if your patient with Parkinson's has voice concerns, if you're able to, recommend an ENT evaluation prior to their arrival. Now, I understand this is not always possible. In my own clinical experience, there are very few of my patients who, even when I've recommended it, have um, gone to get an ENT assessment of any kind prior to coming to see me for voice. However, uh, I think to to implement best practice, we want to make sure that there's not anything else going on in their larynx that we might be exacerbating if we jump right into high repetitions of adduction exercises. And so I think that's important for us to note, at least talk to them about, you know, if you've seen an ENT recently, I'd like to see the report, or please go see an ENT prior to seeing me for voice. Um, I know that that's a a big consideration too for some of the voice treatment protocols that we'll talk about in a moment.
0: Mm, Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because in the back of my head, I was like, I'm pretty sure it's like a super strong recommendation in the LSVT protocol, which is. I'm not certified in. Like, I always like, feel like I need to make that a caveat, but like, still know stuff about it.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, let's take just a quick moment and go over some of the uh, assessments in, for Parkinson's or just what it looks like to assess Parkinson's. Again, it can feel like such a, a smattering of, of um, deficits to, to approach. And so I think it's helpful just to have uh, your, this in your repertoire. What are some things that I would just keep on hand if I wanted to be able to quickly assess someone with Parkinson's or at least thoroughly um, assess someone with Parkinson's. Um, so gathering the baseline data for voice. Um, I didn't put this one on there, but there's you know, the CAPE-V, there's the voice handicap index. Um, I like to get quantitative data whenever I can because that's what gets us reimbursed. And so uh, decibel levels. Um, And actually, Leanne, I I heard one of your podcasts, um, you were asking someone about um, apps where they take this type of data. Um, And so if you don't have a sound pressure level meter, um, you know, looking for apps that are reliable, um, that are going to give you consistent results, and then documenting what you used so that whoever comes after you knows uh, what program to, to use to get the same types of measurements.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there are a
0: lot of decibel meters, free apps on both Apple and Android platforms.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: it's a really helpful biofeedback tool for your patient too. If you're sending them home with, you know, a version of loudness exercises, and you want them to achieve a certain number, and they're okay with downloading something on their phone, you know, they could download it. You could practice it in session, show them where they're working to achieve, and they're able to meet that with a consistent, like, we don't know exactly how reliable, if it's saying like 65 decibels, if it's actually 65, you know, it's like what it is for them. And then you could say increase to two decibels or whatever.
1: And that's what you're
0: working towards.
1: Absolutely. Um, And an app that I use that I feel like is, you know, as as close as I'm going to get with an app is called voice analyst. I do believe that it is, it has a small cost uh three ninety nine I think or four ninety nine um but i I decided to pay for it because it it does have a chart of both uh, pitch and loudness, and you can save them in files and things like that and play the back. So I found those to be particular that particularly to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so then collecting a voice and speech sample, um certainly recommend doing recording this and doing it first uncued. Um so having the person either answer a question about themselves for a couple of minutes or have them reading a passage and then once they've completed uncued then either cueing them okay now do it as clearly as you can or as loudly as you can um and you may even eventually give them a model to see are they stimulable do they hear the difference in the in the recordings that I that I took um it's almost a cognitive screen in and of itself <laughs> Um, and then confirming the dysarthria diagnosis, uh, we we know that hypokinetic dysarthria is the primary. Um, I think nearly ninety percent. There was a, I saw in an article actually recently. I think it was by Moya, Gale and Levy, and it was from twenty eighteen. I think that nearly ninety percent of people with Parkinson's have hypokinetic dysarthria, um, and the NIH says that anywhere from ten to twenty percent. Could have mixed so it's important Mixed dysarthria so i think it's important to still do differential diagnosis and to document the the qualities of the person's dysarthria when you're assessing them um here i've mentioned the uh, newcastle um dysarthria assessment tool to end at, and then the french a i think is probably the more popular of those two um french a being standardized and um they have similar formats in the sense that they're looking at you know various topics of um you know, language, respiration, phonation, um, nasal emission, these types of things. I I don't know that Frenchay has nasal emission, but the NDAT is not standardized, but it has a lot of opportunity for quantitative data. So like um, S to Z ratio and the diadocokinetic rates. And um, they also provide the norms for you for those things, which I always forget. So I find helpful to have on an assessment. Um. And then we have the cognitive screen and assessment. So I put here the mini-mental and the mocha, primarily because these two I feel are really popular in the healthcare settings. The two of I think the most commonly used that at least I, I see come across my desk um, that other people are giving. And one of the things I wanted to note here is that there have been a couple of studies um, that specifically state that the MOCA um does not have enough weight in the visio-, visio spatial and executive function subtest to truly identify mild cognitive impairment in parkinson's um, there was a second study both of these I've, i have in my references that talked about that the specificity and the sensitivity of the mini mental um, had trouble catching the nuances of mci in, par- in parkinson's disease Now, neither of these studies were suggesting that they shouldn't be given to people with Parkinson's, but they were saying that there needs to be more study on what kind of screens could be provided that were a little bit more accurate. And so my recommendation here is if you have someone with Parkinson's come in and you think there's a little something here, I think maybe there's a cognitive component that I need to look into, um, but they do well on the MOCA or they do well on the many mental, with this knowledge, you can know that it may be better to give them a um, more functional and executive function, uh, executive function heavy assessment, like maybe um, something functional like the alpha. Um, or if they're age appropriate, maybe even the favors has a like, ton of executive functioning in it. Mm-hmm. So that's something worth considering, is taking it a step further if you think that they may just kind of uh, pass applying colors on these screens, but that, you know, there's something cognitive going on.
0: Yeah. Um, I was, when you were mentioning that I was thinking over like, what do I have in my office and outpatient? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering what you felt about the CLQT. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't really capture like a lot of functional per se tasks, yeah. but I feel like it's much more visio heavy and they do a little bit more maybe with executive functioning
1: yeah yeah absolutely i i agree with you yeah it's not super functional but it does it does um capture a lot of the executive functions attention is a big one you know in mild cognitive impairment and parkinson's so and it, they have several attention tasks in there and task switching um so i yes i think certainly components of the clqt could be really helpful and i love the um the chart they have on the back you know because it it really is very descriptive and can help you with writing goals and things like that so yeah CLQT could be a good one too okay Um, all right cool that
0: was really helpful
1: all right please continue (laughs) yeah Um, so then a screening and assessing for dysphagia so I I put here the the man assessment and the three ounce watering swallowing test or the Yale protocol Um, and those screens are really good I was going to say You know, I didn't put instrumentals on here, mostly because I feel like that's a a given. If you can get an instrumental, get an instrumental assessment. So we have fees or video fluoroscopy. Um, Both assessments, I think, have a lot of strengths. Um, However, I will say that with video fluoroscopy and Parkinson's, um, you may be able to get some additional information about the esophageal phase. And that's important in Parkinson's because they are notorious for esophageal dysmotility. And they're also notorious for, for constipation. And so um, all of that begins to back up and affects the swallow in the oropharyngeal phases, oral and pharyngeal, oropharyngeal phases. Um, so if you have the ability to scan down, um, in a video fluoroscopy and see what else is going on in the esophagus, I mean, you feel confident with that information. It can be really helpful to know what's going on there. And if that may be contributing to the issues they're having. Mm -hmm. Um, okay.
0: And as you mentioned, it's often our position to make referrals since we spend you know, the most time with them. Yes. That's another referral that might need to be made. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: So a few considerations and questions as you walk into treatment. So I usually do this in patient interview um, in the assessment. So what time are your medications prescribed to be taken? Um, the carbidopa levodopa, again, kind of the gold standard that they've been treating people with Parkinson's with for 50 plus years. Um, is usually prescribed in four hour segments so let's say they're prescribed at 8 12 4 and 8 they need to be taken at 8 12 4 and 8 if the patient is not taking them at those times their symptoms are going to be all over the board and it's really crucial, um, that if they're in a facility, like a long-term care facility or assisted living facility where someone else is giving their medication, um, that we educate people, uh, nurses, who may need some support in understanding that it's not like other medications where you can have an hour window on either side to give it. Um, If the medication is to be given at noon, it needs to be given as close routinely, as close to noon as possible. And then if the patient is self-medicating, the next question I ask is, great, eight, noon, four and eight, do you take them at those times? Um, You know, sometimes they don't. And if they're they're self-medicating, it's important to educate them and to say, look, you know, your symptoms most likely could really improve if you took them at these times um, consistently. And there you have a cognitive task.
0: (laughs) Right? It's perfect. Uh It just blends in so nice. Uh And I'm really glad you mentioned that because during um, working with a patient with Parkinson's, um, I, I, I just assumed, of course they had this information. Of course they had this education. Of course they knew they needed to take it at the specific times at the same time every day. And so just, I wasn't making that a priority to ask every time. And so it just kind of like some, something they said made me think. And so I asked like, well, what times are you taking your meds? And they're like, Oh, sometimes this time, sometimes that time. And I'm like, oh really, not at the same, you know, and we just unpacked that and they they weren't doing that. And yeah. they were experiencing those fluctuating, they really thought that the medication wasn't working.
1: Right, yeah. right, which leads to the next bullet point, which is asking them, do you have, did you experience wearing off? You know, so is your medication wearing off prior to your next dose? Um, I've listened to a variety of the neurologist lecture here in this area and multiple neurologists or, or uh, movement disorder specialists have said, um, if you're wearing off, you should be coming back to me and talking to me as your neurologist and saying, I'm wearing off and you know, 25% of my day or 50% of my day is me just trying to deal with wearing off or off periods. Um, and they're saying that should not be happening. So if that's happening, um, you might encourage them to, your patients, to go back to the MDS and say, hey, this is something that's going on. Um, it's an important part of their care. Um, let's see here. And also, scheduling. I've had people say, three o'clock is my witching hour. I say, okay, well, do not come see me at three. <laughs> let's schedule some time when you feel great, usually, um, because that can be really difficult. Um, Then asking about nutritionist or dietitian referral. This goes back to the constipation bit. Um, Certainly if they're dealing with digestive issues, if they have uh, swallowing issues, but also medications, the carbidopa levodopa is supposed to be taken um, with certain types of foods in order for their body to absorb it well. And I'm gonna get it backwards. I, I meant to look it up before we sat down tonight, but it has to do with protein, um, and how much protein they're eating around the times that they're taking their medication. Um, so I apologize, I don't have the details on that, but um, that's that's something that a nutritionist and dietitian could talk to them about and say, hey, with your medications, the way your body absorbs it, absorbs it best is when you eat about an hour afterwards and there's not too much of this one thing. Um, so, nutritionists, dieticians can be really excellent. It helps when they have experience with people with Parkinson's because it is such a nuanced disease. Um, but that's a question I I often ask. Weight loss can be an issue, especially when someone with dyskinesias who's having trouble burning too many calories.
0: Um,
1: I ask about signs of fatiguing and fading so that I can keep an eye out for it, other team members that I should know about, and if they've had deep brain stimulation, so DBS, or any other significant interventions. Uh, A quick note on DBS and uh, the medication, carbidopa levodopa. Um, Studies are showing that pretty consistently that there is no evidence that speech swallowing, cognition, dysarthria is being improved by dbs or carbidopa levodopa so it's either inconclusive or no there were no improvements so when they take their medication most likely you're not going to see an improvement in your specific areas if they've had deep brain stimulation or if they're considering it it's important that they understand this is dbs is primarily for motor um, based uh, symptoms like tremor and um, dyskinesias and gait disturbances, um, but not for swallowing, not for dysarthria. And there are even some um, studies, um, I put one here, Skoda wrote an article in 2012, and it's in my references, if you'd like to go see it, um, talking about that there needs to be more, more research, but that actually in some people dysarthria was onset after DBS Ooh. and that their rate increased and in the areas where they found that um, sometimes their speech improved it was primarily in vocal volume but that that in and of itself was not enough to improve their intelligibility Mm -hmm. so that doesn't mean they shouldn't take their medication or that they shouldn't get dbs it just means that they should have a clear picture of what it's going to impact
0: yeah no that's super important to clarify and i think that wasn't something that i had clearly um, outlined in my understanding of that And so that also just helps me um, kind of moderate expectations of the patient too. And that's empowering by like empowering our brain, we're able to empower our clients. And that's so, that's why I'm here.
1: (laughs) No, absolutely. Exactly. That's, I think it's so important because um, when, when we're confident in a topic, it, it helps them be confident in us, right? When they can tell that we're interested in what's going on in with them and their disease, I think it helps them have confidence in us. Yes. Okay, so components of effective treatment. So Leanne and I had a, a much deeper conversation about this on the podcast, her Speech Uncensored podcast, it aired in March of this year. Um, so please feel free to stop in and listen to that. I talk about very specific research for each of these four components. And I just put this here so that we can all say, okay, these are four things that we agree are important for effective treatment setting your early expectations, high, high repetition of, of accurate outcomes, making things functional, and carrying over things, uh, carry over practice starting at the very, very beginning. You're going to hear me talk about this as we go forward. And if you have other things that you think should be on that list, put it in the chat box. <laughs> um, all righty, um, I'll go ahead and put in the chat
0: box a link to the show notes for your episode on Speech Uncensored, Great. Um, just as a reference for people to check out later if they want to explore that
1: in more depth. Wonderful. So that's in the chat box. So we'll start with treatment of hypophonia, so looking at voice in Parkinson's disease. So hypophonia, right, characterized by that soft voice, breathiness, sometimes a gravel sound. Um, and we know that Usually, typically, in idiopathic Parkinson's, that soft voice is caused by a lack of sensory awareness, um, not necessarily weakness, and so that's an important thing to to know, is that we're walking in and we're looking really at a cognitive component of why this is happening. Um, Oftentimes, we also see in idiopathic Parkinson's that the vocal folds are bowed, and that makes full adduction difficult and makes full voicing difficult. uh, I've listed two, and we're going to just briefly do a summary of, of two of the protocols for treating hypophonia. The first here I have this LSBT loud. Um, it's very popular. People, a lot of people know about it. it. When you're certified in it, you provide four sessions per week for four consecutive weeks of so total of 16 sessions. and it has to be prescribed that way. has to be completed that way. Um, they're 60 minute sessions. Um, they use the motto be loud. They also have a maintenance program for graduates called Loud for Life um, for them to help maintain their skills after they've completed therapy. And to, do, to, com- to provide LSVT Loud, you're supposed to um, complete the certification. They also have a biannual fees, so I think something nominal, $50, I think, every couple years to um, renew. And they provide you assessment, education and treatment materials online um, they also have a software that you can use that takes the data for you. I've used I've treated with LSVT loud with the software and without the software. And it is a lot of data to take on your own. So if you are able to get the software or have a company that will pay for the software, then I, I suggest um, having the software to make your life a little bit easier. Uh, LSVT loud um, also has papers out that talk about improvement of dysarthria and dysphagia. Um, They talk about that this particular program that they completed this program with a variety of individuals. They're they're kind of small groups, but they did complete a couple of um, studies that say that there were significant improvements in the parameters uh, in the aerodigestive digestive tract um, and the movement that they saw in swallowing And also um, decreased slurring of speech. Then we have speak out, is the second evidence based protocol that's popular. Yes. Okay, quick question.
0: So you mentioned that LSVT has these papers out where they talk about how LSVT makes these achievements. Are there other studies by independent researchers
1: that support these claims? That's, I think, a very popular question. so the majority of studies that i' that I've seen, like if I go to Google Scholar or PubMed, you know something outside of their website, um mostly are reviews of other of studies, right So other people saying we're going to look for at all of the information on treatment of voice, and we're going to say what we found. Um, I've not seen as of late. Other people doing studies to say we've completed the LSVT program and these are our outcomes. Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they're not out there. It just means that I personally haven't found them. So, so if if you're if you're out there, put it in the chat or send us a link. Um, but usually, there's at least one LSVT um, person on the study mm-hmm. that I've seen. Um, speak out. They have a slightly different protocol. They have a two to three sessions per week for four to six weeks they like you to get 12 sessions if you can it's a little bit more flexible in that sense um 40 to 45 minute sessions and their motto being speak out or speak with intent um so as you can tell from their mottos it's a little bit less about um just loudness and a little bit more about all the other components of speech although decibel level is something that you know certainly helps us know um and in the speak out program helps you know uh, how well the person is progressing um, but it, you're not necessarily tied to that like you might be in lsvt they also have a maintenance program called the loud crowd and a lot of great activities there they require certification um, one thing that they provide is a workbook of materials for the clinician they actually send you this nice big box that has a bunch of materials in it for you to take around and then they provide a free workbook that has all of the exercises in it uh, for the entire uh, 12 sessions for any patient that's under your care. And they mail it to them within about two or three days. So um, those programs are looking at very similar similar things. However, um, they have very different approaches and different protocol requirements for you mm-hmm. to complete it.
0: Um, I looked into Both of these because I was trying to determine for my patient population and my current setting, which might be a really good fit. And I think some things that I, I haven't been certified in either of these, but what appealed to me about speak out was Um, they have like a cognitive element to their work so it's not always just kind of hammering somebody with like you just need to get louder you just need to increase your volume like they're addressing some cognitive therapy as well and kind of branching out a little bit there Um, the other interesting thing is that they have these grants that your like location can apply for and it will like train your entire speech pathology staff like they're really passionate about equipping therapists to care for this population. So yeah, there's a lot of really cool things that they're doing. I'm really impressed that they will like mail all these free materials to the patients and yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And, and I didn't put this on there, but I'll say this. Um, So speak out is, was created by Parkinson voice project. So if you're, if you're looking for speak out, that's um, who it's with is Parkinson voice Uh, project in um, Texas so they they have a great program there and um, it's a nonprofit and anyhow there's there's a lot a lot of great things that come out of speak out so LSVT loud and speak out um, both focusing on hypophonia although they also have um, other benefits residual benefits Uh, speak out does not have any papers on swallowing improvement however it's pretty regularly just anecdotally mentioned my patients have also seen improvements in these other areas. So there very well could be um, other benefits to completing these programs outside of just hypophonia. Okay. So when we move into dysarthria, um, as I mentioned, LSBT, loud and speak out may be uh, treatment methods for this as well, treatment approaches for this as well. Um, when we're looking at dysarthria, again, we're looking at that hypokinetic dysarthria, characterized by imprecise articulation, uh, slurring of speech, breathiness, irregular pauses, sometimes stuttering as present. Um, and there are a variety of treatment approaches for dysarthria. But the one that I particularly like is this one called Mind Over Motor um, by Do- Dr. Rosenbeck. And I talked about this in the podcast with Leanne. So I'm not going to spend too much time here. But I will say, if you're looking for a template, he he provides it in his paper, Mind Over Motor. And uh, he wrote this in 2017. And it was published in the ASHA wire. So we should all have access to it. And these are the six components that he discusses something that's unique i think unique especially in comparison with some of the other protocols that are out there is that he really focuses on the concept that the patient needs to be heavily involved in these especially these first three to four steps um knowing the difference in their voice and other people's voices he talks about uh, motivation techniques and and um, i wouldn't really say persuasion because it's not so much about persuading them to be willing to change but the person does need to be willing So sometimes helping them get to that place of willingness to change, the mutual goal setting, and helping them learn how to talk therapeutically. So he does a lot less, he focuses a lot less on the therapist modeling what you want the person to say, but rather teaching them, instead teaching them to recognize how to correct their own speech. It's just a a slight difference, but it's I think a very important difference. And it gives people the the ownership of what's happening in the session. Um, so so again, if you are looking for a template and you're not certified in one of those, one of those other uh, methods, this is a great way to say I'm going to treat dysarthria and I'm going to use this this approach to say to say I want my patients to be involved and let's get some good outcomes. So Dr. Rosenbeck has a great um, paper there, if you would like to check that out. Oh, I did want to oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Leanne. I think something that I love about this approach
0: and that you touched on or you identified was that it's it's training the patient to become their clinician like we are giving them the tools and the insight to be to do their own cueing um we don't have to be over their shoulder every step of the way like we're fading out and they're taking over that that ownership level and it is it's really empowering for them and yeah that's a really great like Shift that I'm seeing in our profession in so many treatment areas is we're like learning how to to take this on and empower the
1: patients in that way. Right. Well, and I think there's a lot to be said. This isn't from his paper, but I do think that there's a lot to be said for uh, wait time and before we cue. Mm-hmm. And I, I have been guilty for a long time of over queuing. It's like I, you know, I see somebody and I'm like, Ugh. you know, I'm ready. I'm ready to be like, wait. There's this thing I got to show you. I got to tell you. Um, but I think waiting and giving the person the opportunity to to succeed a little bit more independently and not be so dependent on their therapist is really important.-.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'd like to talk about two evidence based devices that have been created for uh, Parkinson's disease. One is for for voice and one is for motor speech. So the speech vibe, and Leanne, I'd love for you to jump in on this. I know you know a bit about this as well. The speech vibe has been around for quite some time, um, created by uh, Dr. Jessica Huber, and um, it's a unilateral in-ear device, and they use the Lombard effect to promote louder speech. Now, what the Lombard effect is, is the idea that when there's background noise, you naturally elevate your, your your vocal volume to rise above the sound. So the piece in your ear uh, is notices or knows whenever you begin to speak and emits background noise into your ear so that you are elevating your volume. Um, Sounds simple, but I listened to the podcast and there were a lot of steps to creating this device, and they've had really great outcomes. Actually, I pulled a quote from their website, one of the papers that they've that they completed. Um, It actually says that. With vibe, 90% of the participants improved loudness, rate, and or speech clarity after wearing the device for eight weeks. That's a really high percentage, 90%. Um, and uh, Dr. Huber mentioned that this is not necessarily something that's supposed to take place of therapy, um, but supposed to be used um, alongside therapy. There are various funding options for patients who may be interested in this or be candidates for this, and they offer trial devices. Um, If you have someone you think that might uh, Be a good candidate for it.
0: yeah. And if any of our CEU participants tonight um, have any experience with the Speech 5 or the Speech Easy PD, um like type us a little note and let us know we're so curious if anyone has any has had any hands-on experience with
1: either of these devices i think that'd okay. be really cool to share if you have absolutely yeah so then the speech easy pd it um, has a similar model, a unilateral in device. They have a few different um, versions of it. And it was actually created initially for uh, people who stutter and are highly disfluent, but then they also created one specifically for Parkinson's disease. And they use um, delayed auditory feedback and frequency altered feedback. So you're hearing what you're saying at a slightly, I believe it's higher pitch um, so that you that leads to the choral speech effect or like talking in sync with yourself. And it's it allows you to speak more fluently. Um, so that's looking more at the motor speech component. Um, they have a few videos and things like that on their website, you can go check them out. They also have some various funding options um, for people interested and they allow um, SLPs and other professionals to become trained in it so that they can be providers. Cool. Yeah. So treatment of cognition and Parkinson's. Um, man, there's so, there's so much about cognition and Parkinson's, but I wanna say that I've listed here three categories on the spectrum of cognitive impairment level. And that's not to say everyone fits in these categories perfectly, um, but, it, but I think that this will help at least delineate how we can approach treating cognition. And so some people with Parkinson's have completely normal cognition. It's not an issue. They don't get dementia. No big deal. Um, some people with Parkinson's have mild cognitive impairment. Some people with Parkinson's have a PDD Parkinson's disease with dementia. And then some people have Parkinson's disease with Lewy body dementia um, and or dementia with Lewy bodies. You can do that both ways. So there is a pretty wide spectrum of of who may walk through your door and what's going on for them. And I think that that is important because seldom have I actually had someone um, have a clear cognitive diagnosis along with Parkinson's. So right when the person comes in, it may say Parkinson's, but it does not often does not say anything about their cognition. So it might be MCI, or it might be Lewy bodies, which is an entirely different animal. So it's important for us to know that when someone comes in with Parkinson's disease, we need to be aware that um, we're going to be treating somebody with um, PDD very different than we are with myocognitive impairment. I did want to note just a couple of pharmaceutical considerations. Actually, before I move on from that, I wanted to tell you that I also listed in, in the clinician tools. There is a really, the Alzheimer's Association gave a really good chart to show the differences in uh, PDD and Lewy body dementia. Um, they have so many similarities, um, but they, they give an idea of the core, uh, symptoms that you're going to see in each of them. And the main difference really that, that that I note is that when you have PDD, uh, you have the Parkinson diagnosis typically years before the dementia shows up, um, versus dementia with Lewy body is going to present a lot more like Alzheimer's disease and usually will occur um, within a year or so of Parkinson's diagnosis. So that's probably clear as mud, but there's a chart that will help delineate that if you're interested in learning more, more about that. So the pharmaceutical considerations that I, I find very helpful, especially if you're in a setting where your your patients are going in and out of the hospital, Um, antipsychotic drugs can be very dangerous for patients with Parkinson's disease. Um, they are known to create a lot of problems with their symptoms. And this is really important, especially for our folks with dementias, because with Lewy body dementia in particular, they're having, sometimes we'll have like hallucinations, uh, they're having REM, REM behavior, um, I'm forgetting the rest of that title, but they're they're having sleep disturbances and um, maybe even acting out in their sleep. And sometimes antipsychotic drugs are used to treat those types of things, but they are not safe for people with this disease. And so that's an important thing to know, specifically at facilities um, looking at medication lists and making sure that that's not been overlooked. So,
0: then, oh, go sorry, just to kind of like make sure I'm wrapping my head around this um so let's say we have a patient with Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's um so they're having these hallucinations so they the nurse gets an order for an antipsychotic how might that manifest in that patient then what so what symptoms
1: might be exacerbated or impacted because of that antipsychotic drug so typically um it severely impacts alertness and so, and, and that's in, in, in anyone, but especially in people with Parkinson's disease. And so it puts the people with Parkinson's at a much higher fall risk, which it's like, you know, our patients with Parkinson's don't need additional <laughs> things causing them to fall. Yeah. Um, so alertness, uh, fall risks, they can have swallowing issues um, that are caused specifically because of antipsychotics and alertness issues. Um, so those are the main ones, fall risk, alertness, and swallowing, um, those are the primary symptoms. And I think there are so many other things that come along, that go along with antipsychotic medications and the fact that they don't get out of the body very quickly, mm. and when you have trouble digesting things already, um, they can stay in your system that much longer. So. Yeah.
0: Okay, that, yeah, just you mentioning that one fact was like, um, So we know in the aging population, their metabolism changes. And so drugs interact differently in our aging population. So when a new medication is um, introduced to an older adult, and then on top of that, they have something like Parkinson's, which has already impacted their digestion, um, that lets us know
1: things. (laughs) Fill in the blank, Hannah. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Those are important factors. Those are really important factors to, to... to consider whenever we're looking at treating the whole patient which is what we're trying to do. Um, now this next bullet point is basically a big walking contradiction but but there are a variety of studies that are saying that DBS is currently, as of right now, this all the studies out are saying it's contraindicated for PDD. Um, although there are studies in the works in the past few years revealing new data trying to see what the tolerance levels might be for improving cognition in people with PDD through DBS. So they are trying to see what kind of deep rate stimulation um, may have a positive impact um, on Parkinson's disease dementia. Um, obviously this is a, a, a population that's at a high risk for not being able to advocate for themselves and so it requires a caregiver to sign off to say, yes, we understand all of the risks that may be going on here. So that's why I think the research is so slow um, or is taking the time that it's taking. But right now, DBS is contraindicated because of, um, well, it's brain surgery. <laughs> because it's brain surgery for someone with a progressive, fa- fast progressing, um, comparatively fast progressing dementia treatment of nci and pdd this is pretty straightforward but all activities should be functional i think that our field is finally in a place where we're all in agreement that you know we don't need someone to just do worksheet after worksheet of you know um, connect the dot or (laughs) or identifying you know 25 zoo animals or whatever it might be um we want it to be functional this is something that makes it so much more meaningful for the patient and more enjoyable for us as well. Um, True story, I like, <laughs> just feel like I need to highlight that.
0: <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> that was really, I was just going to support you in saying oh, like, okay. yeah, yes. okay. High five. <laughs> it would be like more fun for me as the clinician too. Like, yes. I remember somebody saying a long time ago, like if you're bored in the therapy session, you better bet your your patient is bored too so absolutely if if you're Um, moving and grooving then they're having a real good time too and of course your goals are being targeted like of course (laughs) (laughs) yes side
1: note (laughs) (laughs) yeah so um then the role of the care partner is going to look really different with mild cognitive mild cognitive impairment versus pdd um something that i think is it is important is if they have an active family member care partner. If the care partner is not yet involved, they will be eventually, and that's something that we know because it's a progressive disease. And so, educating them on the front end can be can be helpful. Now, sometimes people come to you and they are already at late stages of their disease process, and our our role talking with the care partner changes a little bit. Um, but that's again, you know, I think an important part of treating the whole person especially when it comes to cognition. Um, ASHA, I I looked this up the other day and I actually really liked the list. ASHA has our scope of practice when it comes to dementia, just general dementia. And the majority of it doesn't talk about direct treatment. The majority of it, talks about education and advocacy and um, helping with dynamic assessment to see what kind of changes the individuals are having with things like swallowing because of cognitive changes or or speech or language because of cognitive changes. And that's especially true in Parkinson's disease dementia or Lewy body dementia. Um, With mild cognitive impairment, we're really looking more at those frontal lobe deficits with the executive functions. So attention, complex planning, task switching, which most likely will also be difficult for your your folks with dementias. Um, but with mild cognitive impairment, uh, these are the folks who uh, still are interested in looking at balancing their checkbooks and um, managing their grandkids soccer schedules and um, if you've got someone with young onset Parkinson's they may still be at work and need some training and how to manage the distractions because they're having to divide their attention between their computer work and their chatty co-worker Um, so there's there's endless opportunities with executive functions functional activities for mild cognitive impairment and mostly education advocacy and assessment to related deficits with PDD and Lewy body dementia
0: Hannah I'm so glad that you brought up the importance and the acknowledgement of Asha that our role in working with this population is very much education heavy um, I really struggled with thinking like well if I'm not doing some kind of like traditional therapy task how am I providing a skilled service right. oh my goodness that education is a skilled service like I mean, here we are sitting here in a two hour CEU. So, to learn this information to better empower our patients, that's a skilled service. So, um, in this, this model, though, for working um, with this progressive neurological disease, um, I did an, an episode for the podcast with Dr. Lindsay Hydrick from the University of Kansas, and she participates in a movement orders clinic over there. And they they just meet with patients on a three month basis and they're doing dynamic assessment. They're doing, okay, what's your primary concern right now? Um, how have you seen things change? And it's all education. And I'm like, really? Can you, like you, you insurance for that? Like you can just like do this kind of thing. And I'm like, yes. Like I, I guess I thought that was more of like what doctors do. They kind of manage these things over time, but doctors are not spending the time connecting patients with the resources like we can for these very specific things like motor speech, swallowing, voice, all of this stuff. Um, so then if they say something in that motor speech clinic about like, I think it's really time to work on my voice, it's really getting soft, I'm I'm losing the power, my wife is complaining a lot, you know, those kinds of things, then they refer to a traditional, like a more established like outpatient type of thing to do that really regular therapy Hmm. and they continue as part of this um like three month checkup thing so
1: yeah that's a fantastic model and and i think that's going to become more and more popular for these types of diseases because i think we do undersell ourselves i mean how often just like you were saying i have patients that come in and i just figure that it's their disease so they know but often they don't Often they don't. And um, just as an example, uh, my husband and I, I dragged my husband to a big volunteer event in another state, (laughs) and um, we drove to Delaware, and we volunteered at this Movement Disorders Symposium, and in Delaware, in the state of Delaware, I mean, just at that event, there were over 100 people, and there is one Movement disorder Specialist. In the state of Delaware, and he treats all of them. Wow. And they drive hours to see him, right? And he was talking about just how helpful it was to have people like OTs, PTs, and speech language pathologists who could help manage some of the people who had um, issues in their area when he couldn't get to everybody. Mm -hmm. And we're not physicians, right? We're not movement disorder specialists, but we have valuable education and tools for this population and, and other populations. And so I think it's, it's crucial that we not undersell ourselves.
0: Thanks for listening to another edition of the speech uncensored podcast show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple podcasts. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish.